Welcome to episode 7 of the LDS Mission Cast. This is Nick Galetti, and on this episode, we interview Kathleen Sheffield, who's doing some academic research on the many experiences and challenges that missionaries encounter when coming home from a mission. After that interview, we have a segment from Sean Rapier from the Latter-day Lives podcast. Sean interviews Tyson Abaroa, who is author of the book, The Fattest Mormon. He talks about a story from his mission and the experience that he had when he finally came to understand that he was called as a missionary and why he was called. So here it is, our interview with Kathleen Sheffield. Our guest for this interview on the LDS Mission Cast is Kathleen Sheffield, who received a bachelor's degree in modern dance in 1986 and a master's degree in dance and educational leadership in 1988. Both of those came from BYU. She has received a number of awards for her dedicated teaching and has returned to school to receive her doctorate. And part of her research in doing that is what we're going to be talking about today in the phenomenon of missionaries coming home from full-time missionary service and adjusting back to a more traditional lifestyle. She's currently a teacher at BYU still, but uh, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for coming on. And I'm not, I'm not sure how to ask this question. It's a bit of a softball question, but we've had musicians, we've had actors, comedians, all these different types of people on the show, and they talk about how their talents have been put to use in missionary work. In what ways has dance filled a missionary role? Since that's your big, your right. big thing, that there's a long answer to that short question. <laughs> oh, good. Um, came to BYU as a 17 year old freshman. Knew I wanted to major in dance. Took Book of Mormon 121. That was the class you're supposed Required. to take back then. Had an amazing teacher, Paul Warner. The scriptures came alive for me, and so I was so excited to take 122. That was the next semester. Love my teacher, but just not the way. I didn't connect. I mean, Paul Warner, for me, could have walked out of the Book of Mormon with a headband on. I mean, he just, okay. he looked the part. And so I was lamenting to my mother about it. And she says, well, what's your other teacher teaching? I said, well, I don't know. Back then, paper catalog, flip the pages, religion page, right? Okay, well, if he's teaching it, I'm taking it. I didn't even care what number it was. We had, I think back then we had 16, 16 credits of religion, so eight semesters we okay. to take. So took the class. Loved it. Next semester, whatever Paul Warren was teaching, I took the class. This went on for a couple of years, and he said to me one day, so are you going to be a seminary teacher? <laughs> I said, I don't know. Should I? And he said, well, you've taken all the classes but two. Nice. And I said, okay. So I was up for the challenge. I uh, did my student teaching at Pleasant Grove Junior High and Timpanogos High School. Okay, so you did seminary teaching for a uh-huh. while. So, but I certified, but I've never taught seminary. That's the, that's the interesting oh, okay. matter. So I went on to get my master's and was hired as faculty at BYU. So I joke now that I'm a seminary teacher and I teach the gospel through dance. Okay. So, so give us an example. How, how would that even look? So gospel principles are incorporated in aspects of our daily living, and specifically in a modern dance or contemporary dance classroom. It has to do with identity our sense of self, our value, our worth, and our gifts. Okay. So who we are and where we come from and what we do with those here on the earth. And it's, it's an easy application because when you're a dancer, y- you are your instrument. I don't lay down in a velvet case at night and pull a velvet sheet up <laughs> over myself like if I were a Stradivarius violin. Sure. 
You know, I, I go about my life, but I live in my instrument. And so it's the way you learn to communicate and interact. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you. I know that's kind of a yeah, weird question. That's okay. That's all right. So um, again, we've, we've kind of hinted at this idea that you are going back to get your doctorate. Mm-hmm. And specifically, it, well, what's the, what's the actual doctorate going to okay. be? It's a doctorate in education. Okay. And I'm a student at Southern New Hampshire University, which is about an hour out of Boston. It's the absolute hardest place to fly to from Utah. <laughs> but it's choice. a cohort program, and I'm in a cohort with uh, seven other professionals from across the country. Deans of colleges, heads of IT departments, 35-year veteran teaching high school in Long Island, uh, professor, head of a department at Michigan University. So we're all all different, but I'm the only Latter-day Saint, which has been kind of an interesting journey. Sure. So it's a, it's a doctorate in education, but how does that then play in specifically to the research that you're doing with return missionaries? Okay. So I, I've taught for 35 years at Brigham Young University, and I can't even count the number of students I've had that I have observed this phenomenon of reacculturation when they've come back. And usually been able to kind of ground them and help them with movement because I see them every day for an hour and a half. And so I've lived through these transitions with many students. So as I was trying to uncover what I wanted to do for my dissertation, I really felt like I had experience enough and kind of data um, over the years, but there was no data about what the aspects of reacculturation were for a missionary. So I have to start the journey at the beginning, which is to kind of identify what those aspects of reacculturation are, and then I can look at what we can do to change that or help that, because there's just not, there's not any data. Right. It's really, well, there's a very little bit for people that have come home early. Right, right. That's where most of the research has been. And there's maybe six or seven books that you can buy written by church members but, but it's not it's not data. They've talked to somebody. Well, this person explained their experience, but there isn't any specific information about what those aspects look like. And it's been quite a journey. I've spent three years researching what reacculturation is, how that applies to human behavior, how that applies to transition theory. And even there's some of that uh, death and bereavement that's a part of that, which is an interesting piece. Yeah. So let's actually kind of back up a little okay. bit then because you did— you said that you've been working on this for three years. Mm-hmm. And is that how long your your actual formal education part in this has been going on? Or how much of that was before you said, I'm going to actually apply this to doctoral stuff? Um, it's kind of a mix. Okay. So there's three prongs to the program at Southern New Hampshire University. One is a leadership aspect of the education, and we've been schooled in that. And I, I've had a lot of leadership, not just responsibilities, but education. I did a minor in that for my master's degree. The next is research, and so we're schooled in the research methods. So the windows kind of the doors and windows kind of open for me to see the possibilities of what research could look like now. You know, not just grounded theory and case study, but what uh, an IPA interpretive phenomenological analysis method would look like, and what would be best fitting for my idea. And then the last piece was this cultural aspect of education. And that was the most fascinating to me and the most unique for my past experience. I'm a white woman, born and raised in Utah, teaching at a mostly white university with multicultural students, right? Sure. So this idea of culture really kind of got under my skin. And that was kind of the beginning of the journey about what is culture? What is cultural competence? What is acculturation? What is reacculturation? 
And then observing that phenomenon, I actually had a title to give what I'd been observing. Okay. So that's where the reacculturation came from. But reacculturation is based on acculturation. It can't happen. One can't happen without the other. Sure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you're doing this research now, and there's a big component of that online. We even shared this on our Facebook page, this survey, this study uh-huh. that we thought was going to be ending today. Mm-hmm. But you're saying it's going to be going on for another week. So that makes it out till, let's it see, March. It closes Thursday. Uh-huh. March a week from tomorrow. March 22nd? Uh-huh. Okay. So we'll give everybody a week to listen to this episode, go out and do the survey, if they're a return missionary, that is. Right. And what are some of the points that you bring out in that survey? Why are these the points that you've chosen? Well, acculturation has been studied since times of antiquity. So it's not a new phenomenon. Plato believed that you shouldn't travel till after the age of 40 because your cultural aspects of your home culture wasn't solidified and it could cause a myriad of problems. Interesting. Now, especially in our shrinking world that we live in today where we can talk to somebody, you know, in China or Skype with somebody, you know, in Australia. Right. It's interesting that that was what the belief was. So um, that's changed over time. But acculturation is to be immersed or spend an extended period of time in a culture that's not your home culture. Okay. Right? So you acculturate to a new place. Missionaries are prepared for that acculturation. I like to use the term sojourner because it kind of presents this picture of a traveler. So they've sojourned to a host culture, a host country, and they're prepared in what? We have 15 MTCs? Yeah. Okay. To take on or be immersed in this new culture. So that's acculturation. Reacculturation then is when you return to your home culture. The sojourner returns home. But a man can never step in the same river twice, for he is not the same man and is not the same river. Even if you go back to the same place on the banks, the river that's, the water that's running through the river is already passed. And you have changed. So home has changed and you have changed and you're trying to find your way through this transition or this period of vulnerability. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I've been home now for, well, it'll be 19 years. And, well, I looked back when I did Uh the survey Uh on how I felt at the time and how I kind of went through that process and tried to guess as best as I could based on, you know, 19 years. But as I was going back through and or reading the responses that I was giving to the questions... I even found myself going, how much time did I spend wanting my home life before my mission to be exactly the same as after? And then going, but why? Mm-hmm. I mean, what was the reason that it needed that I felt like it needed to stay the same? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I'm hoping there'll be some answers that come through this, I think, through this study. Not only are missionaries prepared to acculturate and less prepared to reacculturate, there's the expectation when reacculturation happens for any population that coming home ah, is going to be easy. It's home. It's my people. It's where I'm safe. It's where I'm understood. And that's the expectation. And research has shown that that's part of the problem with reacculturation because there's not an expectation that things are going to be difficult. That they're going to be easy again. Yeah, that they're going to be easy. And so You'll be that, taking care of it, mom yeah, and dad's house yeah, and all that, that stuff. Yeah, that home will be the same, but you're different and home is different. You know, life has gone on. They've studied reacculturation with expatriates, so expats that have li- lived and worked abroad. 
They've studied reacculturation with the military population. And there's an extra piece to that that has to do with post-traumatic stress sure. disorder. But they're terming, they have a term called reacculturation shock or reverse culture shock, which I think we're seeing some of those things come sure. through with missionaries. They've studied this with study abroad students and their return home and some of the phenomenon. But missionaries, by and large, have not been studied at a, as a part of a reacculturation view. It's a very specific group. Yes, it is. Even though there's thousands of them, it is a rather specific yeah. group. It's estimated that there's, um, at any given time, about 300,000 Christian missionaries serving full-time now. So those would be, you know, maybe from this last year. But at any given time, 300,000. We've got 70 of the 300,000. That's a big chunk, actually. That's a big chunk, uh-huh. And I was reading a report, I think it was in 19... I can't remember, 82. They figure we had the, the one millionth missionary. Okay. But they don't know who it was, just that that would have... Would have made through. sense. Yeah, and that was before we had our big 2012 push. Yeah. So... As I, again, to reflect back uh-huh. on that experience of coming home and some of the challenges that I had, we often speak of mission rules uh-huh. as having some play in this. Oh, we get to go back and listen to the music again and all this stuff. And the longer I've kind of been away from that, I think that that's kind of missing the boat uh-huh. to me. It's not about the music. It's not about those things. It's, it is about trying to reconnect with something that doesn't exist, and you're, you're going to be perpetually disappointed with that if that's your expectation. But then I started thinking... I hear that same complaint in marriages. Mm-hmm. As you get older in your marriage and you've had kids and things like that, it's you hear the, I wish our marriage was like it was at the beginning and mm-hmm. things like that. So there's, there's constantly an evolution that's happening in the life of the Latter-day Saint. Missions are part of that. Mm-hmm. One other part of that is this, I don't know if I want to call it a standard, an expectation, that a mission is the best two years of your life. And instead of just the best two years up to that point. Mm -hmm. So how much does the culture, how much has your experience has informed that culture is what's the problem here versus the time they leave or the mission rules or something Mm -hmm. like that? Well, there's an extra component that um, missionaries have, and especially Latter-day Saint missionaries, and that's the Spirit of the Lord. You wouldn't anticipate a military population having that piece or an expatriate or a study abroad student. And that's something that's starting to show up in the data that I'm collecting, that there's a sense of being, feeling maybe less worthy or like, like they're not living up to their potential because they had that closeness with the Lord on their mission. And now that they're home, they feel that void or that space around them. And it must be because they're shrinking, right? Not because there's a distance, because they're not set apart as a full-time missionary any longer. Mm -hmm. My daughter said this to me. I said, well, what about the RMTC, right? The Return Missionary (laughs) Training Center. Uh And there are two Christian churches that I've been able to find that have a return missionary boot camp. It's two-week. Okay. Tell Max, she says, well, Mom, the MTC prepares you for your mission. Your mission is the MTC for the rest of your life. In theory. And I, I think that's really true, but what gets you from... The mission to the rest of your life. I right. think that's tricky. I'm fa- I'm finding a really crucial place, um, which is the release okay. of of the missionary. And I, I have three stories if I could share them. Yeah, please do. Okay. So a sister missionary um, is returning home. She's been serving in Eastern Europe, 27 hours of travel. And the stake president, the parents called the stake president, said she's arriving at 12:30 in the morning. 
can we just bring her in the next morning and have a release? And his reply is, no, I, you know, I want to see her as soon as she's here in town. And so they pick her up at the airport. She's been in transit for 27 hours. They take her to meet with the stake president. She goes back alone to meet with him. Three minutes is all the, re- the release would take. And she came out clutching her chest on her hand, with her hand on her chest. Mm. And her parents thought, well, she's kind of holding back the tears. Is she having heart palpitations? You know, what's going on? I mean, they haven't been with her more than 45 minutes drive from the airport. So she gets in the car and they ask her what's wrong. And she says, my name tag, he made me take my name tag off. Yeah. Well, you're released. She wasn't prepared for that moment. So second story, number two, missionary uh, served in Florida, came home, same kind of a thing, been in transit for kind of an extended period of time and ended up with the stake president. And again, he said, started the conversation, said, when we're done here, um, I'll release you from serving a full-time mission. And the next thing I'll ask you to do is take your name tag off. Just so you know, that's how this conversation is going to conclude. And if you're not ready to take it off, that's totally fine. You can go home and sleep in it. But when you get up tomorrow, before you go about your day, you'll need to take it off. So he had a little more warning, right? Sure. That missionary went home and slept in his name tag. Okay. Now, for two years, he never slept in his name tag, but that... It's part of your identity. Yeah, because you you give up your first name, don't you? Mm-hmm. You become elder or sister. Third story. A young man served a mission to Brazil, came home. The stake president said, um, talked to the parents before and said, when you bring him home, when you bring him to be released, sorry, I'd like you to bring the family in, five younger siblings. And so the whole family went in to the release, which is kind of uncharacteristic. I don't know, when you were released, did you go in by yourself? Did your parents yeah. go in? No, I went by yeah. myself. And the stake president said, the youngest child in the family was six, so maybe four when this young man left on this mission. said, I want to go around, start with, you know, oldest to youngest or youngest to oldest, and have you share with what you learned by your brother serving a mission, including the parents. Interesting. Yeah. So you look at those three missionaries, where... And not everyone could have their whole family in there, I'm sure. But where was the support at that crucial moment where they turned the corner, where the reacculturation really was beginning, that return to home? Yeah. I mean, here's a six-year-old saying in his heart what, you know, he did to support his brother. Here are the parents, and here's this missionary listening. These are my people. Right. This is my family. This is home. I'm changed. They've been changed by my experience, and we'll grow together. You know, it's funny because I came home— Thanksgiving Day, mm. 1999. So I came home from Baton Rouge. We flew out of Baton Rouge Airport. I remember it. I went to Dallas-Fort Worth. Mm. Were you by yourself? I was after <laughs> okay. Dallas-Fort Worth because I was living in San Diego at the time. But everybody that was coming home, mm-hmm. we were all on the same flight. We got to Dallas. But Dallas, if you've ever been to Dallas mm-hmm. Airport, there's 50 different trains and different terminals and everybody's going different directions. I... All my mission buddies, I waved goodbye to them on the tram, the tram trains, and I was by myself for the first time, you know, in, in two years. And I found myself thinking, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I'm by myself. How Am I going to find my flight? You know, at first it was just the idea that I was by myself. Right. And so I, I then got home. I arrived home, and that night I was having Thanksgiving dinner. And it was very surreal to me because— mm-hmm. I was still a missionary at that point. I hadn't been released just yet, but I had was in that morning. I was in my mission. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of like you didn't know how to respond. These were strangers mm-hmm. in, in many respects. And so there is a need for this. In mm-hmm. fact, 
part of my interest in doing this podcast was to be able to address some of these types of things. In fact, I really want to develop a program, some type of yeah. whatever. To Boy, help I'm that. on board with that. Because it's so needed. And you mm-hmm. see this at BYU a ton. Yeah. And this isn't just speaking of people who fall away from the church, which is no. something that does happen too. But this is speaking of just renormalizing. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious because okay. this is a fun little part of reacculturating dating when yep. you get home. Yep. I didn't see anything particular on your survey about that. So I was following William Bridges. Um, He's an author that has studied adult transitions, and he has a book called Managing Transitions. And so I used his framework as my theoretical framework to just, I wanted to, in a way, prove that the transition and the reacculturation was happening. I can prove it. I got 2,000 surveys, you know, it's going on. But I used that as a springboard, and then I provided the other so they could... I've had people write paragraphs, fill in the other, not just a word. Okay. It's been really interesting the things that have come out of just kind of opening that door that was open-ended but not asking for a large prompt. So I'm hoping my plan is through interview to be able to ask some of these more specific and in-depth questions. I really want to look at reacculturation from the missionary's perspective. I had a couple from Wisconsin, Appleton, Wisconsin, email me that had received um, through email a copy to complete my survey. And they said, where's the survey for the parents? We've sent three missionaries out. They've all struggled. We we need help as parents. And I thought, that's the next study. Every bit is a time. Yeah, yeah a little bit at yeah. a time. Yeah, you know, but I think here there's some obvious, maybe some stake presence that needs some training, or at least to hear those three scenarios of, you know, how things can be different or more supportive. And I think the simple fact of knowing that there's going to be a transition, that it's unknown waters. And that doesn't mean it's negative. It doesn't have to be negative. Right. Vulnerability, what comes after vulnerability, Nick? What comes next? You either shrink yeah, yeah. and hide or you grow, right? But I, I think growth is where we're headed. And I love the question on there that um, asked how many times you, you know, consider in your daily life, you know, things you learned on your mission. Mm-hmm. And it's so inspiring to see that Even people that had what would seem like a really difficult transition, they're still just thinking about their mission. Yeah. You know? It's a big part of your life. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've got a couple thousand responses to this survey. I think we probably hit 2,000 sometime this afternoon. And you you want more. Yeah. Awesome. Bring the data on. Okay. You know, I'll have to hire a statistician, (laughs) you know, an actuarial to kind of lay things out. It was interesting. When I started out, I had more women than men that had responded oh, early okay. on. But the men have passed the women now, and which would make sense. We have more male missionaries than female. I don't have as many demographics and um, the demographic of the senior missionaries. Okay. But I have I've had quite a few. So interesting. I think the 1958, that's the survey, someone that filled out the survey, that was the, as long ago as it's been oh, okay. that responded to the survey. So I thought those were really interesting answers and some of the things that that person yeah, that would be very interesting. Yeah, wrote. Missions were different, right? Absolutely. Sometimes they serve for 36 months. I've looked also at, now you left, did you leave from Idaho, Utah? I left from, actually from San Diego. San Diego. And did you return to the same place? Yeah. You'll notice there was a question on there about that. And one mm-hmm. of my professors, not Latter-day Saints, said, wonderful reacculturation is different if they leave from a different place and then they come home to. Absolutely it would so be. So I tracked that a little bit. It's not a very big demographic. Okay. I mean, not very many people. 
but I have had missionaries that left from Vietnam and returned to Vietnam fill out the survey. Interesting. Wow, that's good. So it is geared towards English speaking, but uh, I think I had 58 countries and 43 states or something at my last count. So, of course, we know, you know, are there 15 missions in California? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many. Yeah, There's a ton. There's a bunch. Philippines, things like that. So that's kind of grouping some things together. So what? where is this data going? So right now it's going into the survey, and I can run some statistical analyses on it when the survey closes. Okay. So um, I mean, I are you writing a book for this, or is this really just strictly your academic? So this will be for the dissertation, but it will be published, and okay. I, I will make it available to anyone you know who's interested in it. I'd like to present the statistics to the missionary department to show them, you know, what people are saying and what they're, what missionaries are feeling and thinking and, and how they're understanding that time period for themselves. Because I think that's where the answers lie, is in those that have been through it. Yeah. And every person's different, but there's going to be some common aspects that I think we can, you know, see how to, how to help. You know, it's funny, I, I bring up almost in jest the whole dating thing, but mm-hmm. that really is... A big part of things because I remember the first person I dated when I got home <laughs> and I thought, hey, she dated me. She must be the one I'm supposed to marry. Because you think like mm-hmm. this is an investigator. If they show interest, you got to go after that, right? <laughs> yeah. And and you can't treat people the way that you treat investigators. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we should be better at that. That's a whole nother episode. But there is something that changes in our interactions mm-hmm. with other people. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to know how to change to that. To adjust to that. And toxic expectations run rampant in these situations. Right. Hopefully, your research will help not just justify that there is an issue, but give us some pathway to where it could Mm -hmm. be improved. And, you know, it would be helpful, I think, for me if I thought, wow, I'm really struggling with feeling like I'm even doing anything with my life. Like, how can what I'm doing now compare to living in Poland and, you know, teaching the the people there? How, How can anything matter that much? And to know that, wow, here's somebody that that served in Vietnam that is thinking the same thing, that that's not abnormal. That's part of the growth that you go through and how to focus and and feel worthwhile in the rest of your journey. And I loved what you said in the beginning where you said, you know, it's the best two years of your life, but so far, right? right. There's more good to come. And so many missionaries look back on that with fondness. And it's just that they're going through transition. Yeah. Somebody responded today a little tongue-in-cheek, I think, and said, you mean we were supposed to (laughs) (laughs) re-acculturate? They just did a comment. I thought that was so great because, yeah, is it going to happen for me yet? Is it going to happen? And sometimes, you know, it's like the tapestry of life. When you look at all the knots and the crossovers on the weave and everything, that's all you can see. But then when you flip it over, you can see the pattern. And I think when you're in transition or you're seeking to re-acculturate, you can only see the knots and the back stitches and the, you know, the crossover stitches. Right. It's when you can look back, then you can see how that prepared you and that directed you. And that's led you to the place that you're at. Yeah. And one of the things that I have noticed in my own personal life, and I assume in talking to others that it's very similar, is that at some point you do realize, I'm not a missionary anymore. Yeah. You do re- reach that point. It's at that point where you have to make the decision, am I okay with that or is that bothering me? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's it's just really funny when you say I taught eternal progression for two years 
but it's so hard to live it once you are still in it and you mm-hmm. are eternally progressing past your mission. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes really hard to take in the lessons that you have been teaching. Mm-hmm. That can also be kind of a shock too sometimes when you're yeah. when you're not really finding hypocrisies, but just what you taught hits you right back at you. Mm-hmm. And living the gospel every day is easier on a mission. Yeah. So there's a lot Wait, of challenges. You have that extra measure of the Spirit of the Lord. It's why when you walk in the MTC, it's just it's like a blanket, you know, that that envelops you. Yeah. And I went on two tours with the new renovation and, you know, it was palatable. I mean, I could feel it. I could really feel it. I had a talk to a missionary that uh, blew out her knee on, mm. on her mission. She was a dancer. So that was kind of a big deal. And she didn't know that it was the ACL while she was serving. They didn't have MRI. They could only do an x-ray. So she walked around for six months, right? Ugh. Just strengthened it the best she could and got along great. wasn't a problem, but found that out uh, when she got home. And so I had a chance to talk to her and I said, so sitting where you're sitting now, right? If you had to do it again, knowing what you know, they were going to lose your knee. Mm-hmm. It's going to affect your livelihood, right, for the rest of your life. And she looked at me and she said, he gave us everything. It's just a knee. That's pretty healthy yeah. way to look at it. Yeah. So, but then, you you know, you have to go on. Right. You know, with your life and... and well, this is all very fascinating. I'm, I hope that we are able to be privy to the information when it gets absolutely. all compiled. Again, anybody that's listening to this that's a return missionary, please go out We'll have a link to the survey at the posting for this episode at ldsmissioncast.com. It's also on our Facebook page. So please go there and do the survey. It doesn't take very long. It's, it's just it's pretty it's quick. Five or six minutes. If that. Yeah, and that's the advice I had in the beginning. Make it short, make it sweet, make it anonymous. Let them opt out at any point to skip any question. Get the data that you can get, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. Well, excellent. Thank you again. Kathleen Sheffield for coming in and talking about this research. And hopefully, again, we'll get some insights as to how we might be able to improve as a, as a people and reacculturate <laughs> Word of the day, right? Yep. Reacculturate So thank you again for coming in. Thank you. I want to thank Kathleen again for coming on the podcast. We'll be sure to check in with Kathleen to see how that research is going, what insights it may be providing in making that transition from full-time mission life to be reacculturated back to a more traditional life pattern. And again, please go to LDS Mission Cast. And if you're a return missionary, click the link, take a couple minutes to do the survey because it's really going to be used as a useful tool in helping people adjust back from serving a mission. Now, Sean interviews Tyson Abaroa, author of the book The Fattest Mormon, about his mission in Santiago, Chile. Hello, friends. It's Sean Rapier from the Latter-day Lives podcast reporting for LDS Mission Cast. And this week, my guest is an incredibly talented author. Tyson Abaroa has written a book called The Fattest Mormon. It is available on Amazon. I have read it myself, and it is a very, very funny book. And Tyson is on with us. He served a mission in the Santiago, Chile East Mission, and he's got a great story for us. Tyson, thank you so much. Go ahead. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I think it's weird to say this is the turning point, but I think, I guess it's really the cementing point of my mission and where I needed to be. Um, I had no plan on serving a mission. Uh, stick president took me aside and said, Hey, I had a revelation. You need to go on a mission. So I thought, well, I sustain him. I 
better put my money where my mouth is. And I, I went. MTC was a lot of fun. Um, learned what I could of Spanish. And then everything changed as soon as I got on that plane because Chile's the other hemisphere. So it was, we were ending summer in Provo. And I show up and it's freezing cold in Santiago and it's raining basically the two days that I had, the first two days I was there. <laughs> and uh, second night, I was cold, wet, and hungry because we only eat big lunches. And then if someone will give you a small dinner, then great. If not, then you keep working. And uh, my companion seemed to just know everything and I didn't know I knew what I could say, but I didn't understand anything anyone was saying. And I was just low because within two days, I, I was already going, what, what am I doing here? And, you know, I'd, I'd been to Iraq in the Marine Corps, and I thought I was just so ready to take anything that was thrown at me. And within two days, I was already almost regretting coming on a mission. Yeah. And my, my trainer, my companion, he was, he was kind of knocking a at a house and they were giving him excuses. And this guy was just walking down the street and uh, I just turned and thought, well, I, you know, I'm here to be a missionary. I guess I better talk to someone. And uh, I, I stopped him, said, Hey, I'm, I'm Elder Abaroa. I'm here. I'd, I'd really love to teach you about Jesus. And he just kind of, no thanks. And kept going. And I turned around and I was like, but, but I know it's true. You got to listen to me. I, I didn't say this to him, but in, in my, in my head, in my heart, I was like, I know it's true though. Like I didn't come here just to, you know, talk to you. I, I want to actually share something with you. And then something clicked right there when I said in my, in my heart and in my head, I know it's true that everything just, I just felt warm and I didn't care about how wet I was, how hungry I was and how, how cold my body was. I just felt, warm. And hmm. that was the cementing point of my mission. Wow. That is awesome that you had that one moment that you can still remember when you knew you were supposed to be out there. Uh, well, a mission is an incredible thing and certainly opens up for those experiences. So Tyson, thank you so much for sharing this with the LDS Mission Cast audience. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Sean for his contributions each week to the podcast. He does a full interview with each person that appears on our podcast. And that full interview goes into their life, their experiences with the gospel of Christ. And that's all on Sean's podcast, Latter-day Lives. So you can find that in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all the same places that you would find us or at latterdaylives.com. He's super funny. And his podcast is a great way to start out the week with new episodes each Monday. They're always uplifting, and it's really entertaining. So please go check that out. But thank you again for listening to the LDS Mission Cast. Thank you to those who went out and got accounts for the Metaphors Discussion Group. It's really needing some more participation, not going to lie. Um, I'm going to add some more new things that I've discovered this last week, some new teaching tools and things that we might be able to use in helping to teach the gospel to others, including things from general conference. It's been interesting to go back through some old conference talks and hear some of the ones that they use from the pulpit. I thought those were actually pretty good. We probably should start using those. Anyway, so please, more people, go check out uh, our Metaphors and Analogies discussion group, and that can be found at ldsmissioncast.com forward slash metaphors. And there are 
more and more of you listening each and every week. So I want to thank you for those of you that have been sharing our podcast with their friends and anyone that's engaged with missionary work in all its forms. But please also take a moment to let us know how we're doing. Send us an email at contact at ldsmissioncast.com or go to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. Again, we still need some reviews from people that are listening to the show and give us some reviews at those locations so that we can be found by others and be introduced to new people. So until next time, this is Nick Galetti. Thank you for listening to the LDS Mission Cast. <laughs>